Good morning. Good to be with you. I'm reading Psalm 118. Let Israel say, his, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do to me. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. The name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me surrounded me on every side in the name of the Lord I cut them off they surrounded me like bees they went out like a fire among thorns in the name of the Lord I cut them off I was pushed hard so that I was falling but the Lord helped me the Lord is my strength in my song he has become my salvation glad songs of salvation all in the tents of the righteous the right hand of the Lord does valiantly the right hand of the Lord exalts the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteousness shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and I have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Our Father in heaven, we... Truly, thank you for gathering us here today. Lord, be with us as Aaron brings a message. Let us open our ears to hear and just rejoice. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we cannot come before you enough and ask for your help. Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. God, that we would behold marvelous things in it, that we would worship you because of it, that we would be more conformed to the image of your Son, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. God, we ask that you would speak to us through the words that come out of my mouth as we submit ourselves to your scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So to start out with, I would like to have a little caveat. I think the kids, the law students, the college people need to cover their ears for just a minute because when I was in high school, I never read a book. I never opened up any of the books that I was required to read, those famous books that we all had to read because I hated it. I never read one of them. We didn't have Google back then. Yes, I am that old to help us to figure out what the books were about. We didn't have Wikipedia or other online resources to help. We had Cliff Notes in print. And so Lazy Aaron would go to the library to check out a Cliff Notes to read that because it was much more efficient to get the answers to help get me at least the gist of what the books were about to summarize what I needed to know. And so I'm not saying that you should disregard the previous 11 chapters in the Gospel of John that we've looked at. And I'm also not saying that you shouldn't pay attention to the next 10 chapters in the Gospel of John that we will look at. But what we've seen so far in the Gospel of John and what we will look forward to seeing in the Gospel of John in the weeks and months ahead is all summarized in this passage this morning. This morning we'll see three groups of people that we've seen throughout this gospel. We will see those closest to Jesus, often called disciples, who follow Jesus' words. We will see the crowds who are interested in Jesus, but they're not really sure they want to follow Jesus. But they want to watch to see what he does and what he is doing. And we'll also see religious leaders. And I probably don't need to tell you they are not on Jesus' side. And we'll see two responses to Jesus. We'll see a response of love for those who believe and follow Jesus. And we'll see a response of hate. Because Jesus oftentimes exposes our sin. He exposes our idols. He causes us to fear God if we truly see what he says and believe the response that we get from God in our sin. And so that said, let's look at John chapter 12. We'll start in verses 1 through 8. We'll see those closest to him, the disciples, and their contrasting love and hate based on their belief. John chapter 12 verses 1 through 8. So six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was the one who was reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge with the, of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it or she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
And so, like I said, our first group this morning that we see are the disciples, those who are closest to Jesus, who listen to him, who want to follow him. We have to begin with Mary, Martha, and her brother Lazarus, but we also have Judas. And you can see the contrast between these two groups of people. And a disciple is someone who is a pupil of the teacher, someone who wants to learn from and follow the teaching of the teacher. And they're in this town of Bethany. It is east of Jerusalem, and it is on Jesus's way to Jerusalem. As Luke says in his gospel in chapter 9, that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's no longer avoiding what will happen to him in Jerusalem, as we know, the cross, which we'll get to shortly. He is going to Jerusalem to die. And the disciples are responding. And so we see Martha. She is serving. As you're familiar with Martha, she loves to do that. Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, he is abiding with Jesus. He is being with Jesus. And then we have Mary, their sister. And she comes in and she anoints Jesus' feet. She opens some perfume. She pours it on Jesus' feet. She washes his feet with her hair. We see a female disciple. We see a disciple who loves Jesus in humility and devotion. In this culture, Jewish women very rarely undid their hair to begin with in public. It's an expression of intense personal devotion that Mary has towards Jesus. It's not immoral and letting her hair down, but it's an act of humility and love for someone that she cares deeply about. And the touching of the feet in that day was regarded as, by the Jews, as degrading, normally reserved for slaves as they walked around on dirt floors or dirt roads. They were shared by animals. You can imagine the things that people stepped in with their sandals. But Mary was doing this at a meal in public in the presence of others, that they may see what she is doing, which shows you she has no regard for their opinion, but only a regard for worshiping and loving her friend Jesus. And it's an act of love, but it's also an act of humility towards him. And then we have this contrast. We have Judas who speaks up. He objects because of his idolatry. He was helping himself with some of the funds that the disciples had. He says he's concerned about the cost of this perfume. The perfume is the equivalent of one year's income for these people. So the average salary in Vermont for an individual is $33,000 a year. It's a lot of money to pour out on Jesus' feet. And ironically, Judas would betray Jesus for a third of that in just a few days. But he was caring about the poor, he said. Out of Judas's mouth, his heart was speaking. He was masked to sound good for those who were in his presence. And motives on the outside can be good, but our heart is what matters most. And there's nothing wrong with participating in social activism to help the poor, what Judas was talking about. We should do that. We should give lavishly. We should help those who are in utter desperate need. But Judas's words and actions, they don't match what is coming out of his heart. The contrast we see between Mary's heart and Judas's heart is stark. We see Judas doesn't truly believe he doesn't truly love Jesus. 
And so Jesus, he takes a moment to speak up. He speaks to the disciples, those who are closest to him. And Jesus doesn't say that we aren't to um, help the poor. Jesus doesn't say that she should have kept some of the perfume for herself. Mark's gospel says that she broke the jar. So there was really no way for her to preserve any of what was left over. Judas even says that the jar is now wasted. It's all gone. But Jesus says to leave her alone. He defends Mary. And this is a pivotal point in the redemptive plan of God. I think there's a subtle connection to what we saw a couple weeks ago when we were in chapter 11, verse 55. I'll say this, or I'll read it for you. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And so folks would come from all over the Mediterranean world. They would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast with the people of Israel. And they were preparing themselves. They were purifying themselves. They were getting ready a week in advance for this festival. And what Mary's doing here is she is anointing Jesus. She's making him ready for the Passover, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And Mary meant this to be a offering of great sacrifice and great cost, a humble devotion. But I'm sure she didn't even know the full extent of what she was doing and the significance that this entire event has for you and I today. And Jesus says, the poor you will always have around you. Many will always have needs. We see that even in our world today. And the words that Jesus say are very similar to what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus, this is what Deuteronomy says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. And so Jesus' point is not to just disregard the poor. Jesus' point is that Mary won't always have Jesus in her presence because in a few short days he will die, he will be buried, and he will raise, and eventually he will ascend into heaven. She was serving Jesus while he was there with her in his earthly ministry as part of his earthly ministry because there will be a time very soon when he won't be present. And so disciples, they hear. Disciples, they believe. They serve like Martha did. They abide like Lazarus did. They serve like Mary did in humble devotion, ready, getting re ready for Jesus' hour. The hearts of these disciples, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are on full display for all to see. But so is Judas's heart, and Jesus knows it. John Calvin says the human heart is an idol factory, churning out new idols like the conveyor belt in a manufacturing plant, rolling out new widgets. We must choose, friends, who we will worship, either Jesus or our stuff. Out of the heart of devotion to Jesus for what he has done for, for us, we will respond in worship. We will model like Mary does, where we sacrifice, we remain humble, we abide with Jesus, and that's the response of belief in Jesus. And we've seen disciples like Nicodemus. They've left his office in the religious, with the religious leaders to follow Jesus. We've seen disciples like Peter proclaim that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Where else shall he go? We've seen disciples bow down and worship Jesus. And the disciples help us 
to know how to respond to Jesus in love and devotion and service as we follow the Good Shepherd. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of our, or after I'm done with this. We'll continue to sing. We'll continue to love Jesus. We'll continue to display our hearts and what we are worshiping. And so the question is, as you reflect on this time, where's your heart? As you prepare your own heart for celebrating the Lord's Supper with God's people, maybe take a moment Take the next few minutes as we finish the sermon to reflect on where your heart is. What do you truly worship and believe as a disciple? The crowds are next. Look with me at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so the crowd, just like the disciples, they have two reactions to Jesus. Some react like the disciples. They come to Jesus. They follow him. Some under, don't understand the truth, though. They come to see the man that was raised, Lazarus, not the man who is the word of God, who raised Lazarus from the dead, the resurrection and the life. In some sense, they want to see another performance. They want to see a magician. What else can you show us that you can do, Jesus? And I don't think we had anybody who came here last week for VBS that came to see the amazing decorations, or that was their only posture or the games that the kids played were fun to watch and even to participate in or the music was so exciting and I'm sure that none of you came on Sunday last week just to see me get the pie in my face. True sheep hear the shepherd's voice. They follow the shepherd. They obey the good shepherd and his teaching and they respond because they believe not because of the things on the outside. And the Jewish leaders, they make an appearance as well because they see that they're losing the battle. Remember I said that Nicodemus has probably already defected. Others are believing and they're following what Jesus said. Some of them believed even though it was probably superficial. And they're probably just as impressed in some of the things that Jesus did as the crowds were. And it's natural to see a crowd forming and gathering when Jesus goes to Jerusalem the next day. In chapter 10, during the Feast of Dedication, remember that was Hanukkah, where the people of Israel celebrated the defeat of their occupiers, the, Sag or the Seleucids. So too, it was clear that they wanted a ruler in this day to defeat their Roman occupiers. And some probably thought, even though Jesus rejected it a few chapters ago, it was like, well, is he actually going to do it now? 
Two years ago, many celebrated Joe Biden winning the presidential election. Four years early, many people celebrated Donald Trump winning the election. Guess what? In two years, whoever wins, there's going to be people who celebrate. And it's going to happen again four years later. It doesn't matter which political party is in power. For a long time, people celebrate those who come into power, who they think will deliver them from whatever they think is afflicting them. For the crowds in our text this morning, they don't truly believe. They think that Jesus is just another earthly king who's going to deliver them from the oppression that they're going to have or that they currently have in the Romans. But the feast is Passover. The city that they're in is in Jerusalem. And look at what they shout. Hosanna. And what it means? Save us, please. In this instance, it was a shout of nationalistic hope and liberation that was arriving on their scene. Their king, who they thought was finally coming into Jerusalem to deliver them. And I'll read Psalm 118 that Phil read in verse 25 and 26 again from our scripture reading. It says, Save us, Hosanna, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And then we see the religious leaders, they give up hope at last in our last section. They want to kill Jesus. They want to kill Lazarus as well in this section because they don't believe. Verse 22 of Psalm 118 is significant in what is transpiring. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Where Jesus is that cornerstone, that measuring line, the sure foundation of our belief and our faith. And the religious leaders, they are rejecting him even more. And Jesus responded to the disciples. Jesus also responds to the crowds. But he doesn't do it with words. He just gets on a donkey. He rides into Jerusalem. And there's two prominent associations with donkeys in the first century. One of humility and one of peace. Jesus doesn't get on a war horse or a stallion and charge the gates of Jerusalem. If he did, he would have continued to whip up this political aspiration that was happening of the crowd into an insurrection and a frenzy. This past winter and into spring, our family, we had a bunch of chickens and we lost six of them to a fox. Many of you know we have a black lab. If we put the black lab out to protect the chickens, he'd probably just want to play with the fox. He wouldn't want to run around too much because he'd probably get too tired, but he is not going to protect. He is a dog of peace. Nobody gets terrified by a black lab. But to fix the fox situation, we had to consider maybe we should get a dog that would actually go and fight. And so Jesus here, he's not coming as a fighter. He's coming kind of like a black lab. He's coming in humility and peace. He comes in peace to Jerusalem. And this crowd has attached themselves to triumph. But Jesus chooses to present himself as a king who comes in peace and gentleness, riding on a donkey, as we see as prophesied in Zechariah 9. He comes in humility because a conquering king coming on a slow donkey would easily be defeated coming into Jerusalem. Jesus isn't about a worldly war. He's not here to defeat the enemies, the Romans that are there. He came to defeat our greatest enemies, 
our greatest enemies of Satan and sin and death by the work that he would eventually do in Jerusalem. And so if you're interested in Jesus, if you're curious about what he's done, even if you have questions, consider how he enters Jerusalem. Some of us might want Jesus to be a magician for us. Can you just give us what we want or what we think we need? Maybe you want an earthly king. Get this person out of office. Put this person into office. Those people I don't like that are in power right now, can you just change it? But Jesus knows, friends, what we need. We need a savior. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he rose. The same crowd that would yell Hosanna today in a few short days will be yelling crucify him because they don't truly believe. But it's for the confused and curious and sometimes enemies that he came to die for. And his death only means something if you actually believe it and you actually follow it when we follow the good shepherd. And that's what the Bible calls repentance. We saw Judas, he didn't repent. He was still greedy. The crowd didn't repent or change. They still call out a few days later, like I said, crucify him. And if you're like the religious leaders, may I encourage you to consider the same thing. They need a savior too. Their idols, as we saw a couple weeks ago, was their nation, their place, their ruling of the people, the influence that they had. And the people stopped following their leadership. And they started following Jesus. And they didn't like it. But like the disciples, like the crowds, like the religious leaders, it's not about us. It's about the humble King Jesus who came to die for us. And like Mary did, we get to worship him. We get to shout even still, living here on this earth, Lord, save us as we wait for his return or our coming to him. And he will, when he finally defeats our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death, he will save us in the end. And maybe you're confused. Everyone in this text was too because they didn't get it. It wasn't what they expected. It wasn't what they wanted because they don't yet believe. Look with me at verse 16. We'll see the confusion. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that they, these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continues to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. Verse 16, the disciples are confused. Verse 17, the crowd is confused. And verse 19, the religious, religious leaders are confused as well. The disciples didn't understand what was going on. They probably thought the conqueror was coming too. But remember though, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. They trust and follow. And when things are confusing and challenging, which oftentimes they are, they continue to trust. They continue to follow. The crowds are confused as well. They even bear witness. Well, he did this stuff with Lazarus. I don't know why he rode in on a donkey, but he raised Lazarus from the dead, guys. 
The section is meant to be awkward. They know true facts about Jesus, but they don't know the truth about Jesus. They don't know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And the religious leaders are confused as well. They just basically like, it's over. We don't know what's going on. The world has gone after him. I know Caiaphas had said that, you know, it's better for one man to die than the rest of the nation to die. Maybe that's going to happen. But I think that might have failed as well because the world is following after Jesus. They're just as confused as the other three groups. But in the midst of the confusion, there is hope and truth. Even in our confusion, Jesus doesn't give up on us. Repentance is hard. Change is hard. Giving up the world and the things of the world and the things that we value is hard, but it's worth it. And we get to do that together. And we look at verse 20. Things change. Jesus doesn't leave us in our confusion. And it takes some Gentiles for Jesus to share with us. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We get a fourth group of the people in this story. We're the disciples and the crowds and the religious leaders. And now we have the Gentiles. God-fearing Gentiles have come as well to worship at the Passover. They're not required to. They're not, in some sense, even able to worship at Passover. Gentiles were restricted from entering into the temple. But it's the same area that Jesus cleansed all the way back in chapter 2, where the religious leaders had made the temple into a den of robbers as opposed to a house of prayer and as that passage continues for the nations where the Gentiles are entering in the outer courtyard to worship God and celebrate the Passover as well. Where the Pharisees were concerned about more Jews following Jesus, now the Gentiles are following and they're interested as well. And Jesus sums it all up, everything that we've been waiting for, where he said over and over again in our study in the Gospel of John, in verse 23, friends, his hour is finally here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's what we've been waiting for. 
It's the Cliff Notes. It is here, and we get to look at it for the next 10 chapters and see what he does. And the coming of the Gentiles, it heralds the climax of Jesus' ministry, where Jesus' death is the moment of Jesus' glory, when God is glorified and Jesus will be exalted to the throne as the true king. And it's this fourth group, it's the Gentiles, that usher in this next phase, his hour in his ministry for us. Where Jesus' death and his coming and Jesus, sorry, where Jesus' death is coming, Jesus alludes to wheat as a metaphor where a seed dies and there's no life. Whereas Jesus dies, his life is taken from him. Whereas the seed grows after it's been buried, Jesus gives us this abundant, eternal life that we've been waiting for where Jesus' death will open up the door of salvation to people of every age and every tribe and every nation. What we saw in that video from Nets this morning of our brothers and sisters in Africa, Jesus has opened up the door for them as much as he's opened it up for us because I'm not sure there's any of Jewish descent in this room. It's all for us as well. And Jesus says his people live in response to his death. He says if you love this life, like Judas, your kingdom, like the crowds, your authority, like the religious leaders, there is no eternal life. Being absorbed by self-protection, the interests of this life here on this earth, friends, will ruin us. When we lay down our lives, in contrast though, in all that it entails at the feet of Jesus, we receive eternal life. Jesus says this in the Gospel of Matthew, something very similar. Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it in Matthew 10, 39. This world does provide a lot of great stuff. But when we die, our stuff remains here. It becomes someone else's stuff. When we lay down our lives like Jesus does, the service we render to God, our union with Christ, it proves this true. And Jesus models a life of self-giving and dying for us. And it's to be followed by those who follow the good shepherd, who are his true servants. And to love this life means that we ultimately deny God's sovereignty over everything, where we elevate ourselves or our things above God. And it leads to our things or even ourselves becoming what we've seen in this gospel as idols. And it's idolatry at the root of all sin. But that's what Jesus came to die for. It's for this hour he came to die for all of our idols. Jesus says if we serve him, if we follow him, if we abide in him, that we will receive honor from the Father. Not honor here on this earth, but honor in the life to come. The Father doesn't val or honor those who value their stuff, though. But he does honor those who model the example of Jesus, who exchange the focus on self-preservation to focus on Jesus Christ. Honor from the Father, friends, is greater than any honor, anything we possess here on this earth, even the loved ones sitting next to you. Blessing from the Father is greater than everything here on this earth. Jesus was rejected by a disciple in Judas. 
was loved and served by a disciple in Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He was questioned by the crowds who wanted a magician or to elevate a ruler who would deliver them from their oppressor, oppressing. Jesus came in humility to bring peace to God's people who were in opposition ultimately to him and to our heavenly father. And no one expected the king to meet his hour on a cross, but it's good for us that he did. If he didn't die and rise, Paul says that we would still be in our sins. It would be everything is vain that we give ourselves to as God's people. And as someone I was reading, recently reading said, the bad news is that God doesn't grade on a curve. Again, going back to that school analogy to begin with. Many believe God is just okay with mediocrity. It's, eh, it's okay. I can mess up. But God judges everything according to his standard, his perfection, his righteousness. There is no curve or sliding scale in God's kingdom just to pass a class. Next week, we'll see. We continue to fail. The good news is Jesus broke the curve, though, because of his perfection. Where we fall short, he achieved a perfect grade of righteousness and perfection on our behalf. And he did so for us. This is the source and means of all of our rejoicing. For those who hear the shepherd's voice, we get to follow and we get to believe him. For those who don't hear and believe, for those who reject the king, the humble king who came on a donkey, there is no means of rejoicing. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he exposed their phony justification, the things that they thought would get them saved. Judas hated Jesus because even in his false humility, his idols were still present and he could not be saved. The crowds who shouted Hosanna will again, like I said, shout crucify him in just a few chapters because he wasn't the king that they wanted. And while this perfection of Jesus, this spotless Passover lamb, is the source of rejoicing for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, it's a means of anger and hatred and utter disappointment for those who believe. That's why the world reacts the way that it does when we call them out on their sin, when we share the gospel, when we share the truth of the Bible with them. But Jesus won't allow us to have our idols ever, even the world around us. Paul says this in Philippians 2, after recounting this humility of Jesus, this sacrifice of Jesus. Paul says this in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so how do you come to Jesus? It's by grace, like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It's not based on anything that we bring to the table with humility and sacrificial worship? Or will you come to Jesus at the end of your life and give an account when it's too late to believe in the substitution of Jesus in your place on the cross for your sin? What's your response to meeting Jesus? You've met him this morning, even in hearing the scripture read in the preaching of his word. Is our response to Jesus in humble service like Mary? And Martha, or humble sacrifice, 
Or will you go away like the disciples who would betray Jesus for a measly treasure of this world or disappointment like the Pharisees or just can't win with this guy? So, eh, whatever. Oh, well. Consider Paul's admonishment. Every knee will bow. Consider bowing. Consider joining us as a church as we submit to Jesus here and now. We must respond to Jesus before it's too late. And the only option we have in Jesus is responding by the grace of God. Jesus responds to us first. He reminds us in our text this morning that we have all longed for, hoped for, waited for, is now here in his hour. He will be glorified in his death and resurrection. And so will we respond in belief and this is an evangelistic gospel. Hopefully you've seen that so far as we've gone through 11 chapters. For those outside of the people of God, this gospel is meant for them as well. We're the Gentiles. They're this fourth group that comes into the scene and they come into the story because it's not just about the people of God who already believe, like you and I here in this room. It's about those who don't believe who are not part of this church or the church that need to hear the gospel, to give and be given an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And I'm sharing this with you because I don't even know where all of you land. I know where most of you are, but I don't know where every one of you is, and I would not be doing my job. I would not be doing what you've called me to do if I didn't share the gospel with you as well. We have a lost and dying world around us that needs to know that Jesus is our. He died for them as well, for sinners like we used to be, who still struggle in that, right? For those who worship their idols, for those who want their king to sit on an earthly throne, who want to remain in power or have no pressure inflicted on them, Jesus died for them. They need a savior just like you and I did. And so how will they come to know the savior without us going to him, without us opening our mouths and sharing the gospel with them? How will they believe if no one tells them about Jesus' hour who has died in their place on the cross for our sins? And I don't mean to guilt you into this, and so please don't hear that. But just like we sing, we'll pray. We'll follow Mary's example of humble devotion and love to Jesus. Humble love and devotion to Jesus also includes sharing Jesus, sharing the gospel with others. It's the only means of salvation that we have and they have. It's the only way that the world can be saved is by believing the gospel. And so let the true king the one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, who is ruling and reigning, rule in your life as we submit and serve and worship him as we believe in Jesus. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your son didn't stop on the road and his way to Jerusalem and take a spot on an earthly throne that he came humbly on a donkey in peace to those who would ultimately reject him who would hate him even more who would put a crown of thorns on his head 
who would nail him to a cross to die the most excruciating and horrible death that the world had known, to suffer in our place. And as he was buried, God, we thank you that he did not just remain there and die as a man, but as the word who took on flesh, he rose from the dead as has been prophesied in Genesis 3 and throughout your scripture where you keep your word. God, we thank you that you sent your son to die in our place, to rise, to give us a newness of life, an abundant life that Jesus calls us to in the book of John. And so God, we desire to worship you even more so at this moment. God, as we celebrate and we remember your son's sacrifice, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we give you the worship and do that you deserve, we want to sing. God, we love you. As we were your enemies, we thank you that you still called us friends. And even this day, as we struggle and sin, as we can't kick those habits, God, we thank you that you still look upon us as your righteous son. But God, we ask that you'd help us to put to death that which is earthly in us and to put on Christ as we follow his example. Father, we thank you. We praise you. Help us to glorify you in the rest of our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name.